Acts chapter 16. I'd just like to read quickly verses 1 to 10 from the NIV. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you this morning, we know that you are the author, your spirit is the author of the word. And so we bow before you this morning and ask that your spirit may make us aware of your truth. And more than just being aware of it, but we might understand your truth. And most importantly, we might apply your truth to our lives. Lord, we don't come together on these days to worship you, to simply learn more knowledge. We join together so that we might learn more of you and more about ourselves and more about what it is you want us to do. So Lord, our ears are open to you. Help us to hear you this morning. And as always, Lord, we are so grateful for the salvation that you offer to us fully and freely by simply putting our trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and his finished work at Calvary. There's nothing we can add to that, Lord. We can't add our good works. We can't add church attendance or religious ritual. We can only trust your provision and put our faith in your Son. Thank you for each person here who has made that decision in their lives at some point, and they are in your family. They have eternal life. They have passed from death to life. If there are any in our midst in this service of the second service this morning who have yet to trust Jesus as their Savior, I pray that not another minute or hour or day would go by before the most important decision of their lives will be made and they will trust Jesus. Guide us in this study, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 16, verses 1 to 10, uh, contain two of my favorite topics in all of Scripture, so I really enjoy this passage a lot. I enjoy studying it. I enjoy teaching it. The first five verses... We are introduced to Paul's missionary team. Uh, we're introduced especially to a young man named Timothy, and he is my, one of my absolute favorite Bible characters in all of the Scripture. And there are many to choose from, as you well know, but Timothy is a, is a special person. And we began to look at why he's special last week, and we'll continue that this morning. And then in verses 6 to 10, we have a topic that I just absolutely love. A lot of people like to shy away from it, and that is, how do we know the will of God? How do we know the will of God in our lives? So that's our second topic for this morning. Uh, there's, a, there's a cartoon that somebody gave to me, and unfortunately I can't remember who, who gave it to me, but uh, if you know me, you know that I love jokes, and I love cartoons, I love humor, and this cartoon is a Peanuts cartoon. And Lucy and Linus are standing at the window looking out, and it is raining cats and dogs. I mean, it's just really coming down. 
And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus said, it will never do that. And then, you know, Linus is the theologian. It will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that that, that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. The next frame, Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And in the last frame, Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. And uh, the reason I share that with you, the reason I mentioned that Peanuts cartoon is because uh, sound theology does a lot of good things. And what we see, especially in the first five verses, is that churches are strengthened and churches grow when they have good people committed to serving others and when they have good doctrine. Churches grow spiritually in other ways when they have good people committed to serving one another and they have sound doctrine, committed people, good doctrine, sound doctrine are essential to the church. And we see that in these first five verses of chapter 16. We, as I, as I mentioned, we are introduced in this passage, verses 1 to 10, we're introduced to the new missionary team. Remember, Silas has replaced Barnabas on the missionary team. We have Paul, who of course is the leader of the team. And now we see that we're introduced to Timothy. Timothy is somebody that Paul wants to add to the missionary team. And at this point, they are on their second missionary journey. Paul is on his second missionary journey, the first for Silas, and it will be the first for Timothy. Now, we are introduced, uh, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. I introduced Timothy to you last week, and you, you will remember that he is from the city where Paul was uh, stoned almost to death, and possibly uh, there are those who believe he did die and was resurrected from the dead. And Timothy uh, apparently was converted at that time. We learned a couple of things last week about Timothy. We learned last week that he was apparently converted on the first missionary journey. Uh, we learned, secondly, that he came from a godly heritage through his mother and his grandmother. Thirdly, last week, we learned that he came from a mixed home, a mixed family. His father was Greek, and he would, be, uh, he would dominate the house according to the Greek law. Uh, his mother was a Hebrew, brought up, uh, and he was brought up in his mother's faith. He was brought up in his mother's faith, but apparently his father prevented him from being circumcised. Now, that would be a real problem to the Jews, and we're going to see that. We're going to see that uh, as we go through verses 1 to 5, uh, that this problem that Paul corrects uh, for Timothy so that he can be useful in this second missionary journey, useful among the Jews. They Though he was, had a Jewish mother, was part Jewish himself, they would not accept him as an uncircumcised servant. And so that kind of sets us up for what is about to come. The fourth thing that we learned about him last week is that he had a genuine concern for others. He had a genuine concern for others. Paul said, as you remember from last week, that there's no one like Timothy. There's no one like him who looks out for the interests of Jesus Christ in other people's lives. Timothy was a unique servant of God. Well, that brings us to two more things I wanted to mention about Timothy. Number five, the fifth thing about Timothy, to add to your list from last week, the fifth thing about Timothy is that first and second Timothy were written to him while he pastored the church at Ephesus. They were written to him while he pastored the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage him to continue in the work that God had called him to. Uh, the, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, along with the book of Titus, are called the pastoral epistles. They are 
they are crucial books to the church because they talk about church order, they talk about church leadership, they talk about church government, and so they're extremely important books. Paul had an important job as he pastored the church at Ephesus. And we study the pastoral epistles to understand church structure. We study the pastoral epistles to understand leadership and to understand the correct way that we are to live and the way we are to interact with each other in the body. So he was the recipient, number five, the fifth thing about him, he was the recipient of the books of First and Second Timothy when he pastored at Ephesus. The sixth and last thing that uh, I wanted to mention about Timothy before we move on is that he was gifted by God, but he needed encouragement to use his gifts. <coughs> Excuse me. He was gifted by God, but he needed encouragement to use his gifts. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, or just write it down for your further study. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. We read in 4.14, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Apparently, there was some kind of an ordination, an ordination in Timothy's life. And at that time, God gifted him <coughs> with a gift to serve him. And so, uh, Timothy, apparently, uh, out of shyness or out of fear or, or uh, out of uh, timidity, he was not exercising his gift. And so, Paul reminds him he's gifted but he needs to be encouraged to use his gift. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. We read this, For this reason, Paul writes to him, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Apparently, Timothy, through uh, being a timid person, uh, was not exercising the gift that God had blessed him with through the hands of Paul and the elders as they uh, ordained him to his ministry. So the sixth thing that we want to remember about Timothy is that he was gifted, but he needed encouragement to use his gifts. Now that takes us to verse 3 of chapter 16. Paul wanted to take him along in the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Well, Paul saw in Timothy, Paul uh, saw in Timothy the, uh, that he could be a useful servant that he could be somebody who would serve. Perhaps he even saw him as somebody to take the place of John Mark, who had, as you remember, had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and who Paul refused to take along on the second missionary journey. It may be that as Paul saw Timothy, saw the, the value in his life, saw the potential that he had, that Paul was thinking that Timothy could replace John Mark and the ministry that John Mark would, uh, was able to do for them until he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. So he wants to take him along as a helper, but there's a problem here. There's a problem here. Timothy is not circumcised. Now, he could not minister among the Jews. <clears throat> they would not accept his ministry if he was not circumcised. Now, you'll remember the Jerusalem Council and Paul and Silas are delivering the results of the Jerusalem Council that circumcision is not necessary for what? Salvation. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary to follow the law of Moses to be saved. 
That was a great joy to the Gentiles to understand that. They would not have to be circumcised. They did not have to follow the law of Moses. All that was required of the Gentiles was to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. So does this seem a little inconsistent to us? Why is it that Paul here believes Timothy should be circumcised? Well, I want you to understand, first of all, there's no issue with salvation here. The issue here is not salvation. Timothy is saved. The reason that Paul wants to circumcise Timothy is because Timothy was well known as having a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and he would not be able to go into places with Paul and teach. He would not be able to serve along with Paul because the Jews that Paul would minister to would not accept Timothy. So the whole issue with Timothy has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with service. It has everything to do with removing a a stumbling block, removing a, a roadblock to Timothy's ministry. And so therefore, he circumcises Timothy to prepare him for this journey. Now, I, <coughs> excuse me. I see a couple of things here that are just uh, amazing that Timothy cared so much for the ministry, cared so much to serve God, so much to be used of God that he would subject himself to being circumcised solely having nothing to do with salvation, but solely so that he could be of service to God. How far would many of us go if we needed to prepare ourselves to serve God in other ways? Timothy was willing to go this far that he might serve God. So the problem here was a cultural problem. The problem here was a custom of the Jews, and it would have hampered Timothy's ministry greatly if he had not been circumcised. One writer put it this way, it was simple expediency that suggested the circumcising of one who was already a half-Jew with a view to his greater usefulness in the ministry of the gospel. In such a case, circumcision was merely a minor surgical operation performed for a practical purpose and not a religious rite. Paul would never have circumcised Timothy had it had anything to do that with the Jews demanding that as a means of salvation. We know that because Paul refused to circumcise Titus in another situation where the issue was salvation. I don't have time to really go into it, but to give you some passages, Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15, all talk about the whole issue of circumcision. And in the case of Titus, Paul refused to allow him to be circumcised, even though the Jews were demanding it. But in the case of Titus, it was an issue of salvation. They were demanding it of Titus as a Gentile. Titus was a Gentile. They were demanding it as a means of salvation for Titus. And in that case, Paul said, no way. No way. So I hope you understand the issue here is expediency. The issue here is usefulness in the ministry. The issue here is not giving offense to the Jews that they would minister to. It was a very different situation from the situation with Titus. Well, one writer said the Apostle Paul's consistent argument in the New Testament is that believers are to express their faith through the cultural forms they inherited. It was not appropriate for Jews to insist Gentile Christians adopt a Jewish lifestyle. Thus it followed that it was not appropriate for Paul to insist Jewish Christians abandon their Jewish lifestyle on conversion. In other words, 
What Paul taught, and you can, you can uh, read this for yourself, study it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, whatever position you find yourself in, when you came to faith in Jesus, don't feel that you have to change. In other words, if you're a Jew, don't feel like you have to become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, don't feel like you have to become a Jew. Uh, if you are married to an unbe another unbeliever and you come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't feel that you have to abandon them. Don't feel that you have to leave them. You stay in the position. If you're single when you uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't feel that you have to be married. If you're married when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't feel that you have to be single. Paul makes that argument, makes that case, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So, The writer goes on to say, today, Messianic or completed Jews often form synagogues and churches, and they worship Jesus in the traditional forms of Judaism, but it's not the form, but the faith that counts. It's not the form, but the faith that counts. Uh, many times in a Messianic congregation, they almost insist that everybody should be following Jewish forms, Old Testament forms that they're superior to Christianity. And that's just not so. Uh, the whole book of Hebrews was written to show that Christ, Christianity, is far superior, far superior to the Old Testament law. Those things were a shadow of a reality that would come. And so uh, Paul is not uh, teaching that people should change their lives in the sense of culturally change their lives because they become believers in Jesus Christ. So the issue here, again, is expediency, his usefulness in the ministry. Uh, people are fond of accusing Paul of inconsistency in his life because he circumcises Timothy but will not circumcise Titus when we understand the background, we see what he's doing. The, the issue is Paul was consistent to a greater consistency. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. Uh, Paul's consistency was at a higher level. Paul's consistency was at a higher level. Paul subordinated every other interest in his life to the interest of the gospel and to the interest of serving Jesus Christ. He was not inconsistent. He was consistent to a higher or greater, he was loyal rather, to a higher or a greater consistency. Well, a couple of other writers have, have uh, made their voice known in this whole issue about Timothy and Titus. Paul's circumcision of Timothy, one writer said, was a matter of wisdom and loving concern for the salvation of his Jewish brothers, not compromise. Another said, Timothy was both Jewish and Greek and would continually give offense to the Jews <clears throat> with no advantage to the cause <coughs> of Gentile freedom. So here for the sake of expediency because of the Jews, Paul voluntarily removed this stumbling block to the ministry of Timothy. Otherwise, Timothy could not have been allowed to preach in the synagogues. So you get the picture. This was a matter of ministry. This was a ministry decision on Paul's part and Timothy uh, went along with it so that there would not be offense given to the Jews and Timothy's ministry would be wide and broad and he would be able to minister fully on the second missionary journey. Well, verses 5 and 6, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey 
If you want to be reminded about those decisions, uh, chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 24, has the letter that they sent to the, the uh, Gentiles about their decision at the Jerusalem Council. And it boils down to this in chapter 15 and verse 29. You are, to, you are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. But they laid it out that Gentiles did not have to be, come under the law and did not have to be circumcised. So they delivered the decision of the Jewish council. As a result, verse 5 tells us that the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. They were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. Now, I mentioned to you last week that the word strength or strengthening is uh, seen many times in the book of Acts through these, through these uh, missionary journeys as the churches are strengthened. Now, there's a couple of words that are used for strengthening, one that is, that is used often means to confirm, uh, to, to uh, uh, have a prop or a support. Uh, many times the uh, churches were, were propped up, so to speak. The churches were supported by the doctrinal decisions of the apostles and they were strengthened in that way. But the word we have here in verse 5 is an interesting word that I introduced to you last week. It's a word that means uh, to be made solid or firm. And it's a word that was used in Acts chapter 3 to speak of the man who was born a cripple that Peter healed. And it was used of what happened when Peter healed him and told him to rise up and walk, and immediately what happened? His limbs were what? Strengthened. His limbs were strengthened. So literally, the word used here in verse 5 of strengthening the churches was literally used, as one writer said, of impotent limbs. Limbs that were useless. Limbs that could not help that man. And when Peter healed him, they immediately were strengthened and made useful. And here, it's used figuratively, which means, which was used to mean to be strengthened in the faith. The way a limb is strengthened by uh, healing and being useful again, you and I are strengthened in the faith. But what are we strengthened in the faith by? We're strengthened in the faith by good doctrine. That's what we see here. They delivered the decisions of the Jerusalem Council in verse 4. And what happened? As a result of the good doctrine, as a result of the sound doctrine, as a result of the healthy doctrine, the churches were strengthened in the faith. And because they were strong in the faith, they grew. They grew. So that's what we see in verses 1 to 5. Well, there, there are many things that we could deal with here, and I, I, I really want to get into verses 6 to 10. Uh, let me just mention one thing. What are the characteristics of a person that God uses? Let me give you some characteristics of the person that God uses. Number one, he uses someone who is saved. Uh, you can't be useful to God if you don't even know him. So the person God uses is one who is saved by grace through faith. The person that God uses is one who knows the Word of God. The person that God uses is one who knows what it is to live by faith. The person that God uses is one who is teachable. The person who God uses is one who is willing to be used of God. And finally, the person whom God uses is genuine, genuinely concerned for the interests of Jesus Christ in others. Well, we see that the churches are being strengthened by good doctrine. They're growing. And then in verses 6 through 10, we see the way God directed Paul and the way God directed 
the missionary team, we see how God directed them, how they determined what his will might be. And I really enjoy this particular section of the Word of God. The will of God is something that a lot of us struggle with. Uh, one of the, the common questions that believers ask is, how do I know what God's will is? And they usually have some decision before them and they're trying to decide, how will I decide to go to the right or to the left or up or down or whatever the decision may be in their lives. Now, there are a lot of wrong assumptions about the will of God. There are a lot of fallacies about the will of God. Uh, a couple of them are, the will of God will be unpleasant. A lot of times believers think, the will of God has to be something I don't want to do that God's going to make me do. So there's this fallacy that the will of God is unpleasant. There's a fallacy that if we follow the will of God, it'll cause us pain. There's a fallacy that the will of God can only be known by the super spiritual. It's a fallacy that to say that it's only important for the super spiritual to know the will of God. The rest of us can just get by. It's a fallacy that the will of God crushes our dreams. You know the way it goes. There's a super athlete who has a career-ending injury and God sends him to a Stone Age tribe to be a missionary. That's what the will of God is. That's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. Another fallacy is that the will of God will only be learned in some life-altering experience. Finally, many times believers wrongly believe that the will of God will cost them a treasured relationship, a treasured person, a treasured possession. Those are all wrong views of the Word of God, of the will of God. You and I can follow the will of God. The will of God is not unpleasant. You see, all of us are going to go through difficulties in life. Not one of us is going to escape difficulties in life. You don't have to be super spiritual to follow the will of God or to know the will of God. The will of God is clearly out there for every one of us to know. I'll try to give us some principles as we get through this this morning. We read in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. The first thing we learn here is that Paul and the missionary team tried to go south in the province of Asia. You see, Paul's thinking was in Asia... There was a great city, Ephesus, which was a great political city, a great commercial city, a great educational area. What better place to see the gospel grow than a city like Ephesus? So Paul tried to go south into the province of Asia. But they were stopped. But they were stopped, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the Word of God in Asia. Now, how did God stop them? We don't know exactly the way God stopped them. We only know that as they tried to go south into the province of Asia, God closed the door. There are lots of speculation about how God closed the door. Some believe that it was circumstances that uh, stop them. Others believe it was a prophetic word. After all, Silas was a prophet according to 1532. Others believe it was some sort of vision that we are not told about. Others believe it was an inner conviction, an uneasiness about a plan of action. And others believe that possibly Paul was in ill health and that stopped them from going south to Asia. What we know is this, they're stopped in their tracks. Listen, they have a good plan. They have a good strategy. 
And yet God stops them. Yet God stops them. I like what one writer said. God sometimes intervenes in man's best intentions. Paul and the missionary team had fantastic intentions. Ephesus was a mighty city. Now, interestingly enough, later Ephesus would be reached, but this wasn't God's timing. This wasn't God's timing. Another writer said, The stops as well as the steps of a good man are ordained by the Lord. The stops as well as the steps as a good man or woman is ordained of the Lord. There are times when God stops us and that's ordained of the Lord. There are times when, when God opens the door and that's ordained of the Lord. The stops and the steps of a good person are, are ordained by the Lord. Well, that's south. So verse 7, they decide to try to go north. Well, what happens in verse 7? When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. They tried to go south. They weren't allowed to go south. They tried to go north. They weren't allowed to go north. Why did Paul want to go to Bithynia? Why did he want to go north? Because there were strategic seaport cities in that area. There were Greek cities with Jewish colonies. It would have been a fantastic place to see the gospel grow. But God stopped them. By the way, you see the Trinity in this passage. I don't want to spend time on this, but you see the Holy Spirit earlier in, in verse 6. You see the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7. And then finally, you see God the Father in verse 10. So you have the Trinity in this passage. But the main point is here is they tried to go south, but God prevented them. They had a great plan. They had a great intention, but God prevented them. Then they tried to go north. Again, a great plan, a great area, great cities, but God prevented them. The gospel would later go south to Ephesus. It would later go north to Bithynia, but this was not God's timing. This was not God's timing. One writer said this, Asia needed the gospel, but this was not God's time. Need does not constitute call. They had come from the east. They had been forgiven, forbidden to go south or north, but they did not presume that the Lord was leading them to the west. They waited for his specific directions. Logic alone is not the basis for the call. Three things I want to mention that I hope you remember. Number one, logic is not the basis for the call in our, your life and in my life. You see, Paul had great logic. He had a great plan. He had a great strategy. He had great logic. But logic alone is not the basis for the call. Secondly, I want you to remember that need alone is not the basis for the call. There was plenty of need north. There was plenty of need south. But it was not God's intention at this time to meet that need. So need is not the basis for the call. And then thirdly, this is one I think that you and I struggle with. Maybe not you, maybe me. And that is, thirdly, we believe that circumstances are the things that will direct us and are the things that will be the basis for our call. But I want you to notice that circumstances are not the basis for the call. So need is not the basis for the call. Logic's not the, the basis for the call. And thirdly, circumstances is not the basis for the call. Circumstances, uh, let me deal with that for just a moment, will often be ambiguous. I, I don't know how many times this happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Circumstances are ambiguous uh, because if we, we are looking for God's direction in something and we, we, we get into a certain circumstance and we see certain things are aligning in our lives and then we say, well, that must be God. He is directing me. But it's just as likely that you and I will say, that's God testing me. 
What are you supposed to do with circumstances? On one hand, he's leading me. Then there's that little voice in the back of our heads that says, yeah, but maybe he's testing you. He wants to see if you'll really go the way he wants you to go. So circumstances are not helpful. Circumstances are not enough. Uh, Let me share real quickly with you. I've been really, really, really enjoying, and I I think I've mentioned to you, Leroy Imes' um, daily devotional. And he was talking about David. And when David was being, before David assumed the throne, God had anointed him king, but before David assumed the throne, he had had to spend, I think, something like 20 years running from what person? Saul. He spent 20 years running from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. Well, at least two times, he had Saul in his grasp. In the cave was one, by the fire was another. In two times, he had Saul within his grasp. At two times, his men said to him, this is your chance. God has arranged this so you can kill Saul and assume the throne and stop running. Remember what David said? Who am I to kill the Lord's anointed? See, if, we, if he was living by circumstances, as we often do, he would have done the wrong thing. He would have assumed God has delivered Saul into my hands twice. Leroy Imes says this, it's easy to mistake circumstances for the will of God. Just because events fall into place that enable us to do something doesn't necessarily mean God wants us to do it. I believe the key to knowing God's guidance is for us to saturate our lives with the wisdom of the Word of God. Then when we are faced with a decision, the blessed Holy Spirit of God can guide us with the Word we have laid up in our hearts. And then he offers this prayer. Lord, you have called me to have eyes of faith. Help me not to always equate the circumstances of my life with your perfect will. He concludes in discerning the will of God Circumstances are much less important than the word than the word of our Father in heaven. Well, what happens next? Verse eight. So they passed by Mycenae, went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to live for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He has had negative guidance up to this point, been prevented from going south and north, and now he gets positive guidance from God, and they waited, they waited. G. Campbell Morgan said this wonderful page of apostolic history teaches us that God's outlook is greater and grander than our own. We may always leave the issue with him, and presently we shall learn how wise his way, how strong his will. Others have pointed out Paul was an apostle, but he did, always not, he did not always know the direction that God wanted him to go. Wearsby said he took steps, God closed doors, so he waited, then God showed him the way. It is comforting to know that even apostles were not always clear as to God's will for their ministries. Well, God positively directs Paul through the vision that night, and they concluded. The word concluded is an interesting word. It means that to coalesce coalesce or to knit together. What happened is Paul has this vision He talks with the missionary team and together they came to the conclusion that God was directing them to Macedonia. God was directing them to Macedonia. This was a a turning point for the church because the gospel leaves Asia and goes to Europe. The gospel went westward westward and ultimately Europe and the Western world were evangelized. We just don't have a picture 
of how significant this passage of Scripture is. The church went toward Europe, went toward the West, and the Western world was evangelized. To conclude, the Greek word means to make together, to coalesce, to knit, to make things agree. And one writer said, A.T. Robertson, great Greek scholar, said, it's a good illustration of the proper use of the reason in connection with revelation to find out what it means for us and to see that we obey the revolution, the, excuse me, the revelation when we understand it. Well, there's, there's so much more, but let me, get, let me I, I'm going to take about five minutes here, sorry. I want to give you some principles. I want to give you some principles, then some questions and we'll, about the will of God, and we'll conclude for the morning. Eleven principles, quickly. Number one, God's, God will sovereignly accomplish his purposes. God will sovereign, sovereignly accomplish his purposes in your life, in my life, in the life of the church. God will sovereignly accomplish his purposes. Number two, God's will is not secret. God's will has been revealed to us. There are at least five things that the scripture says are God's will, where the, the, those are the very words. It is God's will that you. It is God's will that we. Let me quickly give you what those five things are. It's God's will that we be saved. That's what 2 Peter and 1 Timothy say. It's God's will that we be spirit controlled, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. It's God's will that we be sanctified, that is, live a pure lifestyle, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. And by the way, I'll, if, if you can't get these real quickly, I'll have them in the recap next week. Number four, it's God's will that we be, sub, be submissive to authority, 1 Peter 2, 13-15. The fifth time that the Word of God says that what God's will is, it is God's will that we submit to suffering for the sake of the gospel, 1 Peter 4.19. Those are not debatable, folks. It's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will that we be spirit-controlled. It's God's will that we be living a pure lifestyle. It's God's will that we submit to authority. It's God's will that we suffer for the sake of the gospel. God's will isn't missing. It's not a mystery it is clearly spelled out. John MacArthur believes in his teaching that if we follow those five principles, those five scriptures, if we follow those, we can, and we are growing believers, growing in each of those five areas, that we can confidently make decisions and go forward in our lives. We ought not to be paralyzed from taking action. Several things we see in this passage. Number three, expect that God will guide you. <clears throat> expect that God will guide you as you grow in the word of God and <clears throat> as you grow in obedience to the spirit. Number four, if you are blocked at every turn, it's not God's will at this time. At this time. Number five, logic alone is not the basis for a call. Neither is need, neither are circumstances. Number six, strategic planning and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with strategizing, but it has to go hand in hand with following the will of God, listening to the Holy Spirit, being sensitive. Number seven, at strategic points, God will give us specific directions. I, I was thinking about this. Kathy and I were talking the other day, and we weren't really talking about this passage but I was thinking about in my life, and I wish I had time, and I don't. I'm not going to take time I, to share with you the strategic points in my life when God intervened. There have been specific strategic points in my life where God unmistakably intervened to keep me on the road that he desired I follow. Um, Number eight, before God's will involves an action, it involves an attitude. You see, 
If, if we're living our lives for ourselves and we're living selfishly, but we need to make a decision, please, God, show me your will. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? <clears throat> Number nine, renewing our minds is foundational to knowing God's will. That's Romans 12. Number 10, prayer is essential to knowing the will of God. And number 11, the flesh and Satan seek to deter us from the will of God. Let me share real quickly. <laughs> We're going to finish this, folks. I, uh, nine action steps, things that you can do and I can do. Number one, Cultivate a deepening relationship with God. If you desire to know God's will in your life, if I desire to know God's will in my life, I have to begin by cultivating a deepening relationship with God. Number two, pursue holiness in our lives. We have to do that. Number three, pursue humility. Pursue humility. Be ready to let God intervene and overrule and in humility to accept that. Number four, seek out good counsel and good counselors. That is, people who are mature, people who are in the Word, people who pray. Number five, recognize the cycles of our emotions and bring them under the discipline of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Train our emotions. Number six, look for God's guidance and be ready to obey. Number seven, ask good questions. Is this decision consistent with the word of God and the character of God? Does it glorify God? Will it lead me closer to God? Is the decision wise? Is it confirmed by my circumstances? Is it confirmed by mature Christians who know me well? Ask good questions. Number eight, make decisions and be confident of God's leading. Proverbs 16, 9, and 33. Number nine, pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding for yourself and for other believers. I hope that helps you. I know it wasn't three steps to knowing the will of God. That's not the way the will of God works. But I think if you follow these precepts and these principles, that you can be confident of the will of God in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for the example of Paul and the apostles. Thank you that as you bring together good people who are committed to doing your will and serving others, and you strengthen them by good doctrine, they take your truth to the places in the world where you desire. And thank you that your will is not something mysterious to us, but something we can know in our lives on a daily basis. We pray in Jesus' name.